And I think a lot of the time leaders, you get hit with these crises that you could have never seen coming and, and you're a little bit stunned. There's a bit of a kind of a deer in the headlights, like what do I do next? Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as a regular listener should know, the purpose of the podcast is to inspire you to be more philanthropic, to act more sustainably and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Please subscribe to the show, makes a huge difference, and also please share widely with others. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome on board Kevin Frey, who is the CEO of Right to Play International. And he's someone I've known for uh, a few years on and off, and he's doing some amazing work. Today, we're gonna be talking about Right to Play's work, the work they do with children, the value they place on play and learning through play and how play can impact lives in so many different ways. We're recording this from our respective homes because we're all locked down because of coronavirus and COVID-19. And so we're gonna take the opportunity as well to talk a little bit about how an international organization like Right to Play is coping with the adversity that COVID-19 presents and how it's protecting the children and the workforce that is involved with Right to Play's work. So Kevin, welcome onto the Do One Better podcast. It's great to have you on board. Thanks, Alberto. Great to be here. Great. Why don't we start by hearing a little bit about Right to Play's work? What What is Right to Play? What's What's the organization all about? So we are, as you mentioned, an international organization. We work uh, across 22 countries. The majority of our work is in Africa, Middle East and Asia, where we work, uh, reach over 2 million children every year. Uh, we work in 52 different refugee camps. Mm -hmm. um, and we raise the majority of our funds in Europe and in North America. As you mentioned, we use all forms of play. We, from gamified learning to music, sports, art, to help children learn and develop, from helping children leave child labor and return to school, to making learning fun and engaging so kids actually stay in school, attend school and graduate, to empowering girls to say no to child marriage and enabling children to heal from the, the traumas of war. We use play, which is one of the most powerful and fundamental forces in a child's life to really drive that change. Mm -hmm. We were founded in 2000, actually. So this is our 20th anniversary. Um, we were founded by a, a Norwegian Olympian, a, a guy called Johan Olaf Koss, who is our founder. He was an Olympic speed skater from Norway. And if you kind of see our um, logo, there's there's a ball on on the logo. It's actually what we call the, the long sleeve ball. And the story of our founding goes as following. Just before the Lillehammer Olympics in Norway, and Johan's Norwegian, um, he was in Eritrea, mm -hmm. uh, war-torn Eritrea. And he was in a in a rural village. Um, he spent the day there, and one of the boys was really the most popular boy uh, in the village, and he couldn't figure out why. So he, he went up to me, asked me, he said, why are you the most popular boy? And the boy said, well, of course, I have a long sleeve shirt. And Johan was a little bit confused. He said, I don't really get it. I don't get how having a long sleeve shirt makes yeah. him the most popular boy in the village. And he said, well, actually, and he takes off his shirt and he rolled it up into a ball. And it's because he had the long sleeve shirt that had enough material that he could actually turn it into a ball so that all the children could play. Right. So Johan, 
inspired by him, then went back to Lillehammer, became the face of the Norwegian Olympics in Norway. He won a whole bunch of gold medals and he went on international television and said, I'm donating these gold medals for the boy I met in Eritrea. And uh, ended up raising over $10 million in a matter of weeks. It came in from every corner of the globe. Um, and so then what he actually did, this is in 2000, he loads up a plane with a whole bunch of sports and play equipment and flies. And there's great pictures of this, actually. He actually flies into Eritrea. And he lands on this kind of dusty airport landing strip um, of, of kind of red clay. And and he's outside of the... Um, outside of the airplane he's on this huge heap of sports equipment at the time and the president of Eritrea comes to greet him uh, and as he lands um, all of the newspapers across Norway at this time, he's kind of a big deal because he's won all these gold medals uh, are really panning him saying you know Johan Koss is bringing sports equipment to people need foods and medicine what an idiot um, <laughs> so Johan kind of arrives and says to the President Viratri, I'm so, so sorry. I'm going to load all this sports equipment up. I, I, I deeply apologize um, for, for doing this. I should have brought food and medicine. And, and the president actually looks at Johan and he says, this is the greatest gift we've ever received. For the first time, we're being treated like human beings, not just something to be kept alive. Uh, you value my children's playing. You value my children's happiness. And then we're born. Um, there's a great ESPN 30 for 30 documentary about the founding right to play if 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 you mm -hmm. ever wanted to. It's 30 minutes well spent and it's got a bunch of footage. Yeah. Um, but that's how we were we were started. And now, you know, uh, we've reached tens of millions of children since that moment. And it's just been, uh, for the most part, strength to strength. Must feel great. Yeah, it, it's a it's a it's a brilliant organization to be part of. I I. Uh, Came in and uh, so he did 15 years as as a founder and CEO, and then in 2015 I came in uh, to to take over the CEO ship from him. I talked to him regularly. I was on Skype with him. He's in Norway uh, right now, just a, a day or two ago. Still have a great relationship, and uh, yeah, it's been it's been certainly the the best five years of my professional life. Wonderful. And you have you have offices across the various countries. I know you have an office here in London, for instance. So you're based in Canada, but you're you're a global outfit. Exactly. So we're headquartered. We're that kind of odd international development agency that's headquartered in Toronto, in Canada. But yeah, we've got offices in New York, in London, in Amsterdam, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, Germany. So we do the bulk of our fundraising in the global north and then the, the bulk of the programming in the global south. I noticed you have some amazing partnerships, both from governments, uh, EU, Canada, Germany, UK, and then also on the foundation side. A lot of our mutual acquaintances, whether it's Lego Foundation or IKEA Foundation, tell us a little bit about those. I mean, not easy to do. Must be a, It's a vote of confidence. Yeah, that's that's really our our kind of our, our bread and and butter. They those are those partnerships are of what really allowed us to to scale and drive impact on a on a on a global scale. Um, yeah, government of Canada, Norway, like you said, um, UK, DFID, uh, Dutch government, German government all major um, contributors to Right to Play. And then on the foundation side, I mean, Lego Foundation's mission and Right to Play's mission are so almost perfectly aligned. I, once I was joking with the CEO, who I think you've actually had on the show, John Goodwin, 
we we could we could swap mission statements um and 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 it would it wouldn't change anything that we're just so closely aligned in the power of play in a child's life um yeah. and then the ikea foundation has been extraordinary um in supporting our work in some of the most difficult refugee settings from Doloado in ethiopia to camps in the jungles in thailand just on the border with myanmar uh, ikea has been a, an extraordinary supporter for us um going forward and then like you know we got a partnership with the liverpool football club right now mm. which is i think over the next three to four years gonna really enable us to do some extraordinary work across africa and the middle east um the exposure the brand awareness for us and the partnership with which such an extraordinary football club we're on their jersey for champions league games now has been a real game changer for us Oh, well, Liverpool's been on fire, so that's um, it's, a, it's a good partner to have. Yeah, the timing was good. It better be lucky than good. Yeah, but obviously there's no football going on now because we have all of this coronavirus. And tell me a little bit about, uh, as a global CEO, you must get very little sleep right now just uh, worrying about the impact this uh, this devastating pandemic is uh, is likely to have on the global south and the developing world. Absolutely. I mean, the last four weeks, it's been seven days a week, and it's been all COVID all the time. Um, everything else has just stopped. First and foremost, obviously, we're concerned about preparing our staff in the global south for, for what's coming. And I think the statistics are starting to, to bear out that this thing started in China, moved through Europe, obviously US, but now you're seeing real upticks in Africa and the Middle East. Uh, so we're very concerned about our program beneficiaries the children there specifically as you know you know population density in many of the places where we work does not lend itself to social distancing mm -hmm. cultural norms just around hand washing physical contact are are going to be problematic and yeah, the the idea that one could self-isolate is just entirely unrealistic in many of the situations where we work. So as as is access to healthcare. So we're very worried. We're trying to do preemptive work right now on hand washing and social distancing. Uh, we actually, I thought social distancing was a new term. It was actually new to me. Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of entered the, the you know popular lexicon over the last few weeks. But somebody for it, I joined Right to Play in 2015. In 2014, we were doing a ton of work in Liberia on Ebola. And one of our staff members forwarded me a manual um, of all the games we were playing with kids in Ebola in Liberia. And an entire chapter was about social distancing. We had a whole series of 10, 15 games around social distancing. So don't shake hands. And here's how you can kind of greet each other from two meters apart. So anyway, social distancing isn't a new term. It was around certainly right to play was was doing a lot of work on that all the way back to 2014. So we're doing a lot of work right now on on prevention, proper hand washing, social distancing. And then the other thing we're really gearing up for is work on psychosocial support coming out of this because of the expected trauma that will result. Sure, sure, sure. I think you mentioned when we were speaking earlier that in some of the countries, take Liberia for instance, some of the um, some of the social changes that will need to happen in order to cope with the disease are things that the society is already aware of because they had to deal with similar things when they were coping with Ebola. We're hopeful that in some of the countries that were hit harder by Ebola, implementing some of the necessary 
preventative measures will be easier because they've been through a similarly contagious disease before. The reality is a lot of the countries where right to play works weren't hit hard during the Ebola crisis, and that's where we think we're going to see real difficulty, and that's why we're trying to get out in front of this right now. It's super difficult also, though, because, of course, schools are starting to close down in almost all the countries where we work. I think Burundi is the only country still has schools open. And, of course, we want to protect our staff as well. Yeah. So our staff are extraordinary frontline workers who want to get out there and help as much as they can, but we have to make sure that we're not doing any harm to our staff um, or to the children who we serve either. So we're trying to figure out real-time innovative ways and we're pivoting a lot of our distribution channels now to radio to television we're using whatsapp we're using facebook where there's enough internet connectivity so yeah big program pivot Mm -hmm. um, happening in real time as literally everybody just got sent home and you don't only well a few things i mean in terms of learning through play and the value of play it isn't just play for the sake of play Yes, there's the quality education. There's also gender equality, health and well-being, child protection, peaceful communities. It's a very holistic set of, uh, of ambitions that you have in, in mind and play as a mechanism to achieve these things. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think a lot of the time we've been misunderstood and there's actually a bit of, you know, it, it's difficult because our name in some ways does not describe who we are because we actually don't exist to defend children's right to play on the contrary like you said for us play is a means to an end Uh, it's a really powerful force in children's lives both to convene them so to get them to come out to whatever programs that you're running but then to teach them active experiential gamified learning there's just research on top of research that shows this is how uh, kids learn best and and you can teach children anything um, you can teach them about gender equality you can teach them about math or science you can teach them about creativity um, you can teach them about healthy practices so you got it that that in fact play is just the mechanism that we use to drive these really important changes in kids lives mm. And tell me a little bit about the programs themselves, because uh, as I remember from a meeting we had several years ago, you have a pretty robust in-house research function. You take research quite seriously, how you design what works, how you identify what doesn't work, how you measure impact and, and the value proposition of different things that you're doing. Tell me a little bit about how you design some of the programs and what they look like. The best case scenario to probably talk about a measure, so you're exactly right, that measurement and impacts at the heart of everything we do. And that's all we talk about <laughs> within the executive team. Um, you know, of course, you know, we want to be sustainable, we want to be cost effective. Uh, but at the very end of the day, we exist to drive real impact for children in their communities. So we obsess, we're relentless around measurement, and we continue to try to drive forward with increasing levels of rigor. Um, of course, the gold standard is is the good old RCT, mm-hmm. the randomized controlled trial. You can't do that all the time, but wherever possible, we are now building RCTs into our program design. Um, recently in Pakistan, funded by DFID actually, um, a different program called What Works mm-hmm. um, to reduce violence against men and girls. 
they funded a significant RCT looking about how we were using programs to reduce violence against women and girls in Pakistan. And that was three times a week after school programs where we'd bring both boys and girls together, run a bunch of game-based, play-based exercises that taught kids about reducing violence. So anyways, I think it was the Aga Khan University, South African University, and, and another university from Texas came in. They did a whole bunch of studies and a, a number of them have already been published which is great one i think most recently john hopkins global health journal that showed significant and substantial reductions in violence against women and girls with our program so so the new standard for us really is academically publishable evidence of impact now we can't do that all the time Smaller grants, we may have to do the measurement ourselves. Some grantees would prefer not to spend significant amounts of money on the research side of this, but wherever possible, and Lego Foundation's a great example of a foundation Mm -hmm. that really wants to fund evidence and will actually put money against figuring out what is and isn't working. We are allocating increasing proportion of our budget to measurement so that we can stop doing things that aren't working and double down uh, and further investigate and refine the things that are working. Mm. Are you delivering all of these programs yourselves or are you identifying partners on the ground? Uh, How do you operate? Great question. Uh, So the key to right to place program model is, is building local capacity. So at the core of what we talk about when we talk about sustainability is really we our goal has to be to work ourselves out of a job, to make ourselves entirely irrelevant mm-hmm. in a country so that we actually can leave. So what does that mean? That means that actually all of our implementation, so right to play, we don't work, we don't have, right to play employees don't work directly with children. We always train local partners to run those programs. Um, those could be community-based organizations, or in many cases right now, we're working with teachers at scale. Mm-hmm. So we're training teachers on national scale in a number of countries. But also in a place like Thailand, we're working at, at the Ministry of, of Juvenile Delinquency, and we're training actually the, the prison guards um, at scale again on approaches to to engaging with children who find themselves in prison very often unfairly. So we're always working with local partners. The implementation model is always to train up local partners so that they can implement the programs directly, and then we can actually step back and ideally leave. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about your, your funding and the people who support you, and consequently also what sort of programs you might be most involved with or what sort of geographic areas you might be most involved with. If somebody's listening to this and they think this is a really interesting conversation and they want to find out more, I guess, first of all, what's your website address? Uh, Righttoplay.com. So that one's an easy one. That's an easy one. And if somebody wants to find out a little bit more about whether Right to Play is involved in their country or would like to um, getting some of your programs uh, into, into wherever they might be living, Tell me a little bit about how you decide what countries you go into, what programs you back. Yeah, really interesting. I think historically we would, you know, anytime we could kind of find a, a relatively small grant, we would enter a country, but then it wasn't necessarily sustainable over the long term. Mm-hmm. So we made a very key strategic decision with our international board a number of years ago 
to try to go really deep in the countries where we are as as opposed to spread thinly across many countries mm-hmm. um, so we are currently in the process of going deep in our current footprint that being said I just did I had a great event just before COVID shut the world down with uh, the Prime Minister of Canada Justin Trudeau and I in Dakar Senegal so we're not currently in Senegal but in fact the Prime Minister announced a partnership with Right to Play to bring Right to Play to Senegal and it will be a significant multi-year multi-million dollar project to empower girls there actually using sports wonderful we'll be opening in senegal but we do know that we have sustainable multi-year funding from from a government to do that so kind of the the hurdle rate we've sent for ourselves going forward is you know we would need a minimum of of a million dollars a year for three years to enter a new country so that Mm -hmm. we know that we can make sustainable impact in that country when we do decide to enter right Uh, what we can do though is technical assistance in 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 other countries so we have small projects going on in in for instance a country like egypt right now where where we're doing technical assistance with a local partner to help them to run a program so there are some different operating modalities that we'll look at um and then which countries big operations in mali ghana ethiopia burundi rwanda tanzania mozambique i may have forgotten one there lebanon palestinian territories jordan thailand pakistan we were in China till very recently. So that's a, a quick rundown on, on some of the countries in our, in our footprint right now. How did you get into all of this? I don't think I have a traditional background um, for international development in that I haven't, I, I, that's not what I've been doing since I was out of school. Um, I, I have an undergrad in philosophy and history, but I actually ended up getting an executive master's of business administration, my doctorate as well in, in business administration. I spent, before I came to write to play my entire career in education. Okay. So I worked in the university sector for a long time, and then I kind of had a, a parallel career as an entrepreneur, but also in education. So I'm the founder of a, a group of companies called the Kesson Group. And we do uh, teacher recruitment, online tutoring, teacher certification, e-learning. Uh, the mission of that organization is to make sure that every student benefits from the power of a great teacher. So we both do traditional stuff in classrooms and then, of course, a lot of online tech-enabled stuff. Um, my plan was always that I was going to sell those companies like every starry-eyed entrepreneur. And then I was going to start an international development organization. And that's how I was going to do the last 20, 30 years of my life. Of course, I haven't sold the company, so (laughs) probably won't. And then a headhunter called me while I was still at the university and said, the founder of Right to Play is, after 15 years, thinking about stepping back and they're looking for a CEO to step in. And so I knew Right to Play. So Right to Play is quite a, a big brand in Canada. Obviously, we're headquartered here, so most people know about us. Yeah. Um, and I love the organization. I love what they stood for. And so I just kind of inverted the plan and said, <laughs> you know what? Uh, there's this amazing platform right now. I don't need to go start an international development organization. Why don't I go and lead one? So I came over, and it's just been extraordinary. Best decision I've made. Well, that's absolutely wonderful. So tell me, if we're looking for the for 2030 with the sustainable development goals, not that far away, just 10 years, so it'll fly by. What what does success look like to you guys for the next 10 years at Right to Play? 
So it's really interesting. And, I, you know, we have a lot of discussions about, you know, do you need that one number to put on the wall? What do they call it? You know, the mm-hmm. big, airy, audacious goal. And I'm going to X number of kids that we're going to reach. And never. here's how I think about this. So I, I, I don't have like a really slick one liner that says we're going to reach X number of kids by whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, we see that. In the, in the areas that we focus on, you listed a number of them, whether it be child protection, quality education, gender empowerment, where the, the demand is almost limitless for what we need to do, even in the countries just where we are. Sure. Um, we have so many more people asking for us to provide services than what we can satisfy. What we want to do is continue to be able to serve more and more children running into 2030 drive impact obviously but the fact is we need to and we want to get to more kids to protect to educate and to empower them uh we're we're looking at some really interesting new models around Mm e-learning so i think one of the kind of interesting strategic turns right right to play could take so right now you know, we have a very high-touch in-person model where we are training on the ground all these local organizations in the 15 countries uh, across Africa, Middle East, and Asia where we're working. But I think as we look, you know, into our crystal ball, we see all sorts of other amazing international organizations that already are working in 100 countries, 80 countries, 50 countries. Um and as opposed to us necessarily entering all those countries, we're now talking about how do we get our expertise into a format that they can use and infuse via their channels. So not that Right to Play needs to open a country office in every country, uh, but in fact, how do we bring our 20 years of expertise and methodology, which other organizations are asking for, and make it really easy for them to access that so that they can get to the millions and millions of children they're working with. So for us, it really is about scale. It's about getting to more kids and thinking about innovative ways to do it. Um, I would also like to see before 2030, and we're starting in a couple of countries to to get past what we would call the tipping point, Mm -hmm. where we're working with a system level national partner. We've infused the methodology, we've done the training, they're actually ready, it's in the curriculum. where we can actually step back and reduce all the way down to just a little a technical assistance role. So I think success for us is is to have a, a few exits from countries. And then because we've been able to achieve scale and, and, and totally transmit the expertise to our local partner. And then the second thing is to figure out how to use our methodology and to transfer it to other organizations who have far bigger footprints than ours so that they can then drive the impact that Right to Play knows it has via their channels and of course then have this order of magnitude multiplier in terms of the number of children's lives we can impact. Are you already identifying or working with some of these um, high-scale, let's call them distribution partners? Are, Are you already dealing with some of them? Are you finding that there's traction here? Yep, so we're getting requests from a number our biggest problem right now is we haven't actually built our methodology our product if we were to use that analogy in a way that would be easy to infuse through other organizations channels 
our current model is we have these amazing trainers in all of the countries that are training our partner, um, our, our local partners. And so it's a bit of a pivot for us. And it's something that we're getting pushed on by a number of our big funders as well mm-hmm. to think about how we can take our methodology, turn it into tra- transform it so that it can be easily adopted by some of these other really, really big players. Um, because I do think, and I'm sure you know this, you know, there's just way too much redundancy and overlap between sure. players in the international development space and the idea that right to play needs to enter all of these countries when there's other big players there with big footprints on the ground. What we need to do is figure out how to get our methodology distributed via them so we can impact these kids without having to set up parallel operations in all of these countries. And it probably helps quite a bit that you have these, uh, strong partners like Lego Foundation, IKEA Foundation. I imagine the conversations you have with them are very collegial and collaborative and a lot of brainstorming going on about how, how to address exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, they're brilliant on this stuff. Like Lego Foundation, number one, convenes all of these major players. So they get everybody together typically in Billen for a big conference every year and it's all yeah. about cross-pollination. They, they also fund a lot of that comparative research across different impact modalities. So we can look at different organizations, uh, interventions, which ones are driving the, the biggest change. And then a Lego foundation is exactly the kind of foundation that would be willing to, to step up and fund and help us use our expertise, but make it available to all of the other uh, major large players. Um, so yeah. It's it's those foundations are such an important part of the ecosystem because they're the ones who value and can enable that that cross pollination. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, we're going to definitely have to have you back on the show, I think, because half an hour is not enough time to <laughs> to cover everything. And probably what we need to do is when you're back on the show, maybe follow up and see, you know, how did it go? How is the distribution channel coming along? You know, how, how is the, yeah, cool. uh, that'd be great. Tell me b- before we wrap up. If, um, if you had one key takeaway for our audience, what would that be? This is probably more just to do with my headspace right now because I'm, I'm sitting in, in the middle of a COVID crisis where, you know, mm-hmm. we expect yeah, a significant hit to our, what we call our unrestricted funding or our non-grant funding, mm-hmm. which has all sorts of implications because we do a ton of event-based fundraising. Um, and of course, this virus in many ways targets that fundraising modality because to raise the money, we have to get a lot of people into a really small space, like sure. 1,200 people into a convention center for a big gala. And we can't do any of those this year. Um, so we certainly find ourselves in, in a situation that, that it could be correctly called a crisis right now. Um, a crisis, obviously, there's, there's the health crisis that's raging around the world, but it's also creating a, a funding crisis as well. And I think a lot of the time leaders, you get hit with these crises that you could have never seen coming and and you're a little bit stunned. There's a bit of a kind of a deer in the headlights, like what do I do next? Um, But I'm convinced and I kind of know this from the businesses that I've started because we've we've seen our our fair share crises as well. That it's precisely when the world's changing super rapidly like this, that actually new opportunities are emerging. Uh, opportunities to serve new populations uh, or born out of necessity to invent new and and disruptive ways to innovate and to deliver impact. Uh, 
new opportunities to get into relationships that people you just weren't talking to all of a sudden you're 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 in these new networks and new relationships and i think huge opportunities to leapfrog on strategy on delivery message uh methodologies on on organizational structures um but i actually think that that for leaders in a in a space like this you just have to really consciously flip from reactive and kind of your natural Darwinian instinct to retreat and protect whatever you have to go into kind of an active search mode for where are the new opportunities? Mm. Uh, where, where, how can I make this crisis uh, a force for really progressive and positive change for our organization? I think they're everywhere, but you kind of got to get off your back foot and onto your front foot. And I'm kind of saying this as I continue to run myself because I've got all the same Darwinian instincts everyone else does to kind of, you know, run away and just wait this thing out. But, but I think it's so important to look for opportunities here. I love the optimism. I think uh, under the state of affairs, looking at things as the glass being half full and looking at what the opportunities uh, that might be leveraged. Um, that's a great way of looking at it and certainly a great way to wrap up today's conversation. Kevin, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the Do One Better podcast today and speaking with you again. To our listeners, thanks very much for listening, for tuning in. Please subscribe, please share. It really uh, makes a huge difference. Kevin, really wonderful having you on the Do One Better podcast. It's been great. Thanks, Alberto. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. <laughs>